Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone, or whoever everyone might be. Uh, this is Dr. Simon talking to you from uh, sunny but very windy Florida. And uh, my show, as always, is the stories we live by. And I want to talk a little bit about today's story, which I have titled Stories About Psychotherapy as a Science and as a Religion, uh, which was motivated by the fact that I have a book coming out, which is a kind of professional autobiography or memoir of where I started in the field of psychology way back in 1969, 70, I was first licensed in New York uh, as both a professor and as a psychologist, uh, a practicing psychologist. Um, And as always, when I finish a book, uh, I've written on this topic now, this will be the fifth book in a way. Uh, Each book ends, and then I look and I say, gee, I left this out. I didn't talk about that or this. And the very fact that I wrote the book uh, is the motivation and the source of what comes next. It's like having a conversation. You sit down with somebody and you have a conversation. You don't really know where the conversation is going. You end up saying things. You end up uh, talking about stuff. And it takes on a life of its own. And unless you carefully edit what you're thinking or what you're saying, which is something that people can get themselves to do, um, it goes in nice directions or uncomfortable directions, as the case may be. Uh, So this idea comes up all through my book that psychotherapy and the practice and the ideas are more a kind of a religion in many ways than as science. And let me start out by defining what I mean by a religion. Now, I want to recommend a book to everybody. It's by Yuval Noah Harari. He's an Israeli historian, economist, um, philosopher. I mean, his, 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 his home base apparently is history. But just reading it, whether you agree or disagree with him, is like a breathtaking experience. This is an individual who has a grasp of ideas and history uh, that is just wonderful. Uh, and it's called Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. Now, you have to think about the audacity of somebody who would write a large book, not that large, uh, describing the development of human civilization and the major ideas that have made human beings the social and psychological and historical figures that they are. It's wedded and bedded in evolutionary theory. Uh, And there's not a field or a discipline that doesn't feed into it. Uh, The second book, I recommend less, but still recommend, you'll want to read it. It's called Homo Deus. Homo Deus, Human Beings as God. Uh, And in it, he argues that where we're going will terminate us as a species, very likely. Because we're playing God with the planet, we're playing God with each other. Uh, But he defines uh, along the way the idea of religion as one of the driving inventions, one of the inventions, the social intellectual inventions that has driven history, 
and has made human beings uh, what they are and brought us to where we are today. And so he defines a religion, and this is now my my, uh, uh, rephrasing of his definition, is that a religion can be defined as any systematic set of beliefs that set forth factual and moral truths that purport to solve various human problems in living. And he talks about religion, and it's usually the truth of the facts and the morality are based on some authority. Now, he points out, and I have on myself, my own pointed out, that a religion need not be based on a theism. It doesn't have to be based on gods or gods. It can also be secular. If it's a systematic set of beliefs that set forth the truth, how you should live, what you should know and understand about the world, it's a religion. But what makes a religion different from other kinds of of ideas uh, is that it has to be taken on faith. And the faith is in the authority who sets forth the doctrine which is called the dogma of the religion. It can't be questioned. It has to be accepted on faith. And very often, religions, particularly if they're theistic, meet with terrible criticism uh, by anybody who questions them. You're not supposed to question what's true or what's good. And once you establish God or the gods as authority, what you've created is a hierarchy, a moral and intellectual hierarchy in which human beings are too inferior on their own to establish what's good and true. And in my book, I talk about, you know, the hundreds and thousands of years of war and killing that has gone on between various kinds of dogma. Oh, somebody's trying to call in and I'm not going to break the call for this. Uh, Throughout what happened throughout history, basically recently in human history, is the rise of democracy, which is less authoritarian, more spread out horizontally. People are more equal or conceived of, and this had embedded in its cause the rise of science. And I'm not going to go through, I grew in the book a little bit of the history of why I think science came about. But science is a different set of notions about how to get to truth. Facts are based upon observation. And the idea of explaining how things work are not a dogma, but they're called theory. And another word for theory is educated guess. And what made science so powerful, really powerful, is the idea that anybody who has eyes can learn about the world outside themselves or in themselves through observation and description and coming up with a theory. And the theory is not set forth in stone. It's not set forth as truth. It's set forth to the degree that facts are not ignored And facts that counter the theory have to be taken into account in maintaining the theory. Theories are filled with doubt, and theories can be overturned. Now, 
This brings me to my own beloved field that I have been in as a psychologist for now 50 years, a little more than 50 years. Woo! Let that go fast. When I came into the field, I was introduced to Skinnerian psychology, and that people were nothing more or less than a kind of an input-output machine. You don't talk about the experience, you talk about the objective facts that become associated together to produce observable uh, behavior. I never was a very big Skinnerian. I never was particularly interested in doing the kind of research I was supposed to do to make psychology the science of behavior, because I was always more interested in what people thought and felt than how they behaved, that behavior was, was a product of what people experienced. I became involved and became an acolyte of psychoanalysis. Uh, not Freudian, which psychoanalysis, but more Karen Horney. And I won't go into these theories, but I became aware that the various groups, the those people who followed Harry Stack Sullivan and Karen Horney or Alfred Adler or Sigmund Freud behaved more like a cult. You did not question, you did not question the master's theory. If so, you were dubbed a mentally ill person. You needed therapy, more therapy, more psychoanalysis to bring you out to the truth of the master's idea and more understanding into the corruption of your own insight that you dared to question the master. To me, this was authoritarian religion. And as I began to learn about the, the, the process of treating people, that the word is treatment, I was told and believed for a long time that mental illness cause people to think differently and think wrong, feel the wrong way, behave the wrong way. When I came into the field, there were 25 diagnoses about. A little book I had on my shelf on the nature of mental illness. It's now over 500 and growing like the schmooze in Al Cap's comics who finally had to be killed because they were eating all the wood in the entire world. Um, I became critical of that and discovered that if you, because uh, I read Thomas Zoss's masterpiece, The Myth of Mental Illness. And I remember the transformative moment in reading that. And I sat there looking at, say, my God, he's right. What the hell am I doing? If I'm not dealing with men, a real illness, that these are false, they're metaphors for judgments of behavior, moral judgments of behavior. And as I questioned this, uh, Lord, I was diagnosed as being mentally ill by everybody I said this to. So you can't question now the religion of psychiatry. And I go through a little bit of the history in my book of how psychology ended up being grafted onto the, the, the field of psychiatry. And by the way, I have nothing against psychiatrists. Uh, Lee Coleman is my guest. Uh, I'm going to bring him on in a moment. 
Uh, he is as fine a person as I haven't met because we have met online through an organization that we both belong to. Um, and he has written a book that we'll talk about a little bit called The Reign of Error, which is tremendously critical of uh, psychiatry's role in the law in determining who should be guilty and who should be innocent on the basis of having some kind of mythical mental illness. Lee, I got that right, didn't I? Yes, Larry, uh, and good to talk to you. Uh, it's, it's not just about the law. It's just as much about uh, therapy. It's about anything right. where psychiatry has the power to either force anything on anybody or the power to, as you were saying, tell people what is the right thing to do, tell people how she would, you should respond in social policy questions. Right. So it's really a critique of the idea that psychiatry should have any special place that is right. uh, part of the state's power. And it goes to in both therapy and in the law because it's right. all mixed up together. And the book so you and I says, are on the same page in terms of the critique, absolutely. and I think you're yes. agreeing with me that psychiatry and clinical psychology and clinical social work and clinical nursing, which have all bought on to the same set of ideas, are more religion, dogmatic religions, than anything that really is based in science. I think I, I do agree with you. I think... Okay. There is. But there let me is make, tell you one more thing, and then I'm going to open this up sure. so we can discuss it in any direction. Sure. Go ahead, man. As I developed over the 50 years, as the years went by very, very quickly, I went from trying to figure out if Freud wasn't right necessarily and Horn I wasn't right, if childhood experiences are not the only things that cause people to be crazy. And by the way, you think of the word crazy it has no meaning. Crazy means I don't understand why somebody is doing something or saying something. I don't agree with it. So I don't know what it means. So I call it by a name. I call it craziness. No different. This is what mental health is. 500 different words for being crazy in one way or another. I began to evolve my own understanding. I wrote a book in, 19, in the 80s called Cognition and Affect, in which I integrated Piaget's developmental psychology into psychoanalytic framework. And I presented this in the clinic I worked at. And one of the psychiatrists, who was I was friends with and would remain friends with after the incident, picked up a blueberry pie and threw it at me and said, how dare you criticize Freud? I wasn't criticizing Freud as a person, although that's been done pretty well too. I was just trying to expand the notion of the ideas of why people behave as they behave, including ideas about how people develop intellectually, not merely the conflicts of infancy and early childhood, which become the basis at which I had accepted. That's the truth. That's how people get crazy. They don't resolve their Oedipus complex, their Electra complex, and you, know, you can do a whole forever show on what the feminists did to Freud in the 1980s because women took a lot of hits along the way as being the cause of their children's problems. Over-seductive, 
women, brutal fathers. I mean, it, it was very much limited only to uh, uh, the immediate environment and the immediate childhood. We know that there's injustice in the world. We know that there's prejudice in the world. We know that there's poverty, that there's economic difficulties. There are all manner of things that get people to think differently or are transformed differently. And then I got involved in critiquing the very idea of the field itself. And just recently, and I think, Lee, uh, you saw this thread, I came across a new therapy called brain spotting and in the brain spotting it's you hold a wand in front of somebody and the first thing i thought of a wand what am i watching mickey mouse <laughs> in the sorcerer's apprentice which was the cartoon to paul ducas the sorcerer's apprentice the music uh, and you have them free associate and the author of this talks about they're getting training in this. People are getting training in this, which is what happened. People were trained in analytic institutes. People were trained in, in new age philosophy. People were trained. The constant explosion of new ideas and the guy who creates these new ideas, which have to be accepted on faith. The person who goes through this wand experience better. They feel better. That's wonderful. But this is promoted as a treatment for an illness, an illness that in fact doesn't exist. And so as I look at the field from hindsight, because I'm not in it anymore, I never have to diagnose another human being. Right? I never have to give another student an A, B, C, D, or F and reduce the entire experience that they had in their education with me to a letter. And I never have to do that again. Okay? I decided to talk about whether psychotherapy is a science or is a religion. And in fact, when I read about EMDR, one explosive idea after another in which the person who comes up with it is now seen as a guru. And hundreds of people now put down their tuition money to learn how to use the wand or move eyeballs, or, or do, put hands on. Um, and I, I wrote a little piece that for the organization I sent out, I didn't get too much of a response, that this is really no different than the laying on of hands in a religion. It's faith healing. And I'm not against faith. But don't call faith science, because science is the antithesis of faith. Okay? And don't call it a treatment. And the fact that it makes somebody feel better needs to have a better explanation than this mythical notion, this, this hodgepodge of ideas that now everybody is running to become a part of. And so that's the end of the story and the beginning of the story. What do you think, Lee? I'm so happy to have you on because I could probably shut down the show right now and start happy hour early. <laughs> I, I have some thoughts. Um, I just, for your audience sake, I am no longer doing therapy, but I could do it if I chose to. Uh, I'm retired from that, but I still think there is a way that you can do, uh, let's call it 
I don't know what we want to call it, but it's a relationship between somebody who wants some assistance. That's, of course, the first absolute requirement that can never have any force involved. It can only be between somebody who wants help and some source of help, whether that source is an individual person or a support network. I still think it is possible to do, to offer that, and I do believe there are some skills, but I agree with everything that you were saying that, yes, way, all these schools. My notion, I called my, what I do, I stopped doing, what I started doing 15 years ago, psychotherapy, in which therapy is in quotes, yes, because it's yes. metaphorical therapy. And it's based right. on the relationship, and there's no magic yeah. in the relationship. If somebody well, wants to talk, absolutely it has to be non-coercive. Otherwise, it's called torture. To force okay, somebody to think a different way is torture. Right. right. But now the and the relationship allows a democratic structure in which people feel free to say the unsayable without worry about being mocked, criticized. And all kinds of new thoughts and ideas and telling of stories changes. Okay, so, but you've been, in the same way that I would be, critical of these various schools of ther- so-called therapy that you said are really like religions. And I completely agree in the sense that when you have a source of authority which hands down the dogma, and in order to be a member or participate, you must accept it, that absolutely is what all these various schools of therapy are now what i'm talking about is not that there would be only one person who is the source of the dogma and yes indeed is the client the person who is seeking help they would decide first whether they want to participate we've said that but they would be deciding whether whatever they are doing with these people who are helping is actually helping they are the ultimate source of power. They are the ultimate source of how it's going to be done. Absolutely. And, but I, I think that nonetheless, in that way, it is still possible to develop skills as a, I'm going to call him a, a counselor, let's say, because basically what you're doing is you're not doing something to the person in some sessions that you have with them, the way you're I doing something with someone. The way I do it is that the actual, if there's going to be help improvement, that is going to be not in the sessions that you have. It's going to be what happens between the sessions, and it's going to be judged as whether it is helping by the, the person, not by right. the professional. And I see it more as a model, kind of like a coach. You know, a basketball coach has a group of people who want to be there, but they need help to help them bring out the best that is in them. They are human beings engaged with other human beings. The real test of whether something is working will be judged by the player and it will be determined not when the coach is even there. The coach is, is not is uh, not 
participating in the game. So I think there is a rule. There is a role for professionalism in being a therapist, but it's an understanding that the client is always in charge in all ways. Let let me jump in because I agree with you because both basically when I describe psychotherapy with the quote, I believe it's a form of non-coercive personal education and that Mm -hmm. I was operating as a kind of a teacher, not as a doctor therapist. And mm-hmm. what I felt was the most important thing for anybody to learn, and I've been writing about this from book to book, is the difference between a judgment and a description. A description describes what is there, its color, its size, its movements, how it felt, what I thought. A judgment determines goodness and badness. I'm no good. I shouldn't have been born. It's a dialogue that teaches that difference and then allows absolutely, as you say, in between the sessions where people learn to stop judging themselves and condemning themselves and other people and start asking questions that lead to descriptions and a kind of new theory about how to live. And that's where where I really have written most of the book. So not to me, it's not, a, you see, we look at searching for a metaphor for therapist and you say coach. And I think that can be a very apt one. I use teacher and I really mm-hmm. felt I had helped more people as a, as a, 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 an academic in my classroom than I did ever as a therapist. Mm-hmm. I really do feel that way. And now I have another hard question for you. Okay. Sure. Lee, can I ask the hard question? I'll preface it by saying I did not need to have a Ph.D. in how to do research to be a good teacher. I learned that independently in a way. I didn't need the Ph.D. I needed the Ph.D. to have this conversation with you. That's what I needed for. I needed to be able to think critically in a way, about the field I was in and what I was doing personally and as a professional. That's where the PhD, to be a scientist of people of myself. So I'm going to ask you now a hard question. Do you absolutely feel that you needed to have an MD degree to be the kind of coach you became? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. In fact, going way back to when I was in medical school, because in medical school, I was getting exposed to medicine, physical diseases of the body, medicine, and also getting exposed to psychiatry. And I could see that the only reason that psychiatry was a part of medicine was primarily because of history, not because they really belonged there. So in my, in my, uh, development, finishing the medical part and then going on to psychiatry, I would say that everything that I have done that is in the right direction, and I'm the only one really can judge, (laughs) but my view has been, despite the fact that I had the medical training, I had to overcome what they were teaching us. And of course, the way psychiatry has gone in the last 30 years, it's become truly grotesque. But I had to overcome the psychoanalytic stuff they used to teach us 
I didn't have any trouble overcoming that. You know, one of my YouTube videos that I'll just mention, when I talk about my views What's about psychiatry. Site? People want to go to the site, Lee. Where, where, where is the site? Part of my website or, or my YouTube channel called Psychiatry and Society. That's the name of Psychiatry it. Psychiatry and, and Society. And okay. Society. I just want everybody and, who's listening to this. And by the way, this, this broadcast goes all over the world. Not a lot of people okay. hear it, but it goes all yeah. over the world. So, yeah, so what, I, what I talk about in that, in that YouTube video is I, I was saying, if you go back to the 70s, psychiatry was threatened economically in a variety of ways. And in order to protect itself, it started developing this disease or medical model. Before that, they were psychoanalytic. And what I said, the yes. name of the video, the title is A Plague on Both Your Houses. In other words, right. I was critical of the psychoanalytic model. And now I'm even way more critical of the medical model because both of them are lies. Psychoanalysis was a lie in the way that you said because it was a religion. It was the religion of Sigmund Freud. And that was just baloney. Now it's even bigger lie because it's so much more harmful of a pseudoscientific lie. So to right. answer your question, all the things that I've been able to avoid doing were because I was willing to reject what was being taught. First, psychoanalytic model, and now the disease or medical model, which is overwhelming us. Both of them are false. And Let me suggest something, though. I don't... Way, there is a way to do therapy, but you have to avoid those kind of mistakes. Yeah. See, I disagree with something you're saying about your, your training as a doctor. I think it gave you a set of insights into the way the world works that allowed you to develop the critique that you did. Um, it, it, it's the same. To me, the, the real basis, when I, when I work with people, uh, one of the things I try to get all my patients to do ultimately go back to school and read, um, have discussions with people, um, to open up a world of ideas. Um, and my education, especially at NYU where I took my doctorate, uh, introduced me to people whose minds were alive. And I'm sure your medical education did exactly the same. No. Well, I, you know, I, I agree. I think we're really not disagreeing on that point because when I say I had overcome the medical side of it, that doesn't mean that I rejected medicine. In other That's words, right. That's in order, here, here's the, point. the way I say hey. When I tell people about why the psychiatrist teaching is a fraud, Hello? what I say to them is, yes, are you, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, I'm sorry. I pressed the wrong button on the phone for a second. Go ahead. Uh, okay. So what I was saying is I, it's not that I'm rejecting legitimate medicine. And what I talk to people about is I say, I want to explain to you why psychiatry, when it claims to have diseases that it is treating, that that is a fraud. Then if you want to know what real medicine is and what is counterfeit medicine, 
first you must go to what real medicine is. And I talk about what doctors do. Opinion, most doctors are saints. I wouldn't be alive today four or five times over if it weren't be for the fantastic medical care that I have received. So right, what right. I do is and I'm, I'm with you on that. Real, real scientific medicine, what is it that happens? We were talking about it earlier, real science. And then I say, now let's hold that up against what psychiatry is doing. And psychiatry fails every test. And but it's, it's not getting psychiatry. It's clinical psychology. It's clinical social oh, yeah. work. Oh, it's yeah. anybody oh, yeah. who, after World War II, you know, the, the bonding of, of, the, the, of psychology and psychiatry came at the end of World War II. And one of the chapters, that, uh, one of the chapters, I deconstruct a number of the mental illnesses. And one of the ones I'm the harshest on is this notion of post-traumatic stress disorder. That a man or a woman comes home from war where they have witnessed and been part of killing and torture and mass murder, and they're expected to see the world the same way as they left. Okay? Yeah. yeah. That, you know, the political implications of that are enormous. They're enormous, but it destroys people. Um, and so when I talk about the, 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 our field did this because there were too many people coming back in World War II with so-called, what, what was it called, the battle neurosis? Yeah. Or yeah. war neurosis? Well, here's the and then it became, uh, um, they have different terms. Now we doctored it up to post-traumatic stress disorder. You're not responsible for yourself. You're not responsible for your life. Uh, you're the hero who saved the country. And I've, talked, well, I've worked with many people who came back from Vietnam. And what really blew them away was not merely the fact that they had killed. I, I had one guy I talk about in the book who was on a helicopter gunship. And they would come over a village, the helicopters, and they would spray bullets down so that every man, woman, child, dog, cat, and pig was now pink on the ground. And they couldn't live with that. And then on top of that, that they realized the war was a lie. They were sent there was bullshit. And what did this they did to these individuals? The view they had of themselves, the view, and they couldn't talk about it, and nobody would listen. And then we call it that a mental illness? How dare we? How you know, dare we? Let, let me, uh, uh, to some degree, come to uh, the defense a little bit of your profession, psychology, because remember, it was the psychiatrists not the psychologists who took the lead in this vast expansion of these so-called diagnostic labels. They forced the psychologists to follow their lead, and when, if they followed, they have to take some responsibility. But historically speaking, it's the psychiatrists, not the psychologists, who really should take most of the blame because they wrote this diagnostic manual and... You know, it's not to say that you're wrong. Not at all. We're on completely the same page with all those labels. Uh, but the psychiatrists deserve the most blame because they're the ones who are most benefiting from this phony disease model, from this magnifying or multiplying of the labels and 
and and it's getting so much worse now as they want to drug the whole world. So we're yes. very much on the same page. I think I think we're. It's a matter of what you emphasize in each particular point, but our points of view are essentially the same. That in order to help people, I will respectfully disagree with you, Lee. At this point, you and I both know people who are tortured by the idea of of uh, labeling people mentally ill. They're tortured by it. And what we do is we, all of us in the field who realize what we're talking about, understand it, that the, it's all based upon this corrosive lie. What we do is we give the least pernicious diagnosis, adjustment disorder, or some crap like that. Nobody wants to speak up. You know, I read some of the reviews of Reign of Error and how you were abused by people in your field, right? Well, there, when there, I came and I started to teach my students directly from the DSM so that they would understand what's in it, the political nature of it, the corruption of it, uh, I was attacked. They took my courses away from me. It happened towards the end of my career, so I was almost ready to retire. But I took a walk. We are as responsible. Anybody who follows that kind of dogma and doesn't speak up against it. Now, I'm being kind of hypocritical because I'm not in the field anymore. I have no more economic loss to take by saying what I'm saying. But the field, and the field, by the way, I agree with it's dying because medicine is going to take over everybody. Everybody. It's all going to be, take your drug of the day, drugs of the day. Well, you know, there, there is a movement. Admittedly, it's very small and doesn't have much power. But if you take people like Laura Delano, she is what's called, uh, I don't remember the exact name, but it's Freedom from Psychiatrists. There are people developing alternative networks of help for people who are seeking help. Right. Where they, there's a recognition that you can help people as long as you follow certain basic principles. That's right. Voluntary and so forth. And we, we can't and just truthful. say we're going to give up. Truthful. And there, 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 there are people like that, and uh, I don't want the listeners to go away thinking there's no way you can get help unless you go to somebody who's going to diagnose you, because uh, that's not really the case. And one of my favorite discussions about this issue of the diagnosis is by Laura Delano. It's, it's called the power of psychiatric diagnosis. And the truth is, as she beautifully describes, psychiatrists and psychologists can't diagnose anybody because a diagnosis means a scientific finding about a bodily illness, a medical illness. Right. Right. And these mental problems that we're talking about are not medical diseases, so therefore they cannot right. be diagnosed. Right. So there, but you see, who's the, who takes the responsibility now? The responsibility, and I write about this in the book, is for the patient to yes. fight back against the diagnosis and say to the professional, who normally can't say this without being run out of the field and losing their income, I don't want to be diagnosed. And talking about a fee structure that's independent of writing a diagnosis that goes to the insurance company. And very few people are able or willing to do that. Right? That's true. So I believe... 
Most of the people you and I know are tremendously helpful to the people they work with because they are democratic and they teach and they are non-judgmental. But the whole process has to start with this dance around the lie. And that has to stop. And I don't know if it will stop. Well, I think that's what, why my emphasis is and what I'm trying to focus on is basic public education. The kind of thing that yes, you're doing you are. in your book. There you are. Basic public education, because the only way we can change the system, if it is possible, is getting ordinary people to be understanding of how wrong it, the system is and then yes. developing political motion, political change. Right. And who's going to do that, Lee? That, who's going to do that, Lee? Well, well, you and I are doing it right now in a broadcast around the world. And huh? here's how. The people who are listening to us, they yes. need to join us. Yes. yes. And, join and when will our colleagues, most of whom I like and respect, join us in an effort to get this out to the public because we no longer bleed people. I mean, things have changed in many ways, but how do we get our colleagues, all of them to join with us in doing an educational process to kill the beast? Because now we're relying on like Eleanor Delano. Is that her name? Delano? Laura, Laura Delano. No, is she a professional? No, no, she's not. No, she was somebody who was victimized by the system? She, yes, she was. She was graduated yeah. from, I think she's at Harvard University, but she's not a right. professional in the health field. She's simply one of the best spokesmen I know of for the right. point of view that we're talking about. But I want to go back. You just said we need to get our colleagues no, I don't think we're ever going to be able to get a big enough percentage of our colleagues. I don't think that should be the starting point. I think the starting point should be the general public. Ordinary thinking people, critically thinking people. Lee, is there something wrong with your, my phone or your phone? I'll keep hearing scratching and, 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 and interference. Uh, I had, no, I just had to clear my throat. That was me. So, <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, go on. All right. I think I think that's why in my work, in my YouTube channel, I'm emphasizing ordinary, critically thinking people, not necessarily professionals. If we get more and more of those people, we can stand a chance of pulling professionals towards us. If we yes. start with the professionals, we won't get enough. Right. Right. So the followers have to lead and the leaders have to follow. Well, the leaders should never have been the leaders in the way that the system forces We both both understand that. And again, it was an accident of history. Uh, uh, You know, my profession sold out because the psychiatrists after World War II said this is going to be the model. And instead of developing our own model, we went along and succumbed to to what's bullshit. And, And then... and. In order to, what's happening now is that the field is proliferating more and more what I think is silliness, not based on any kind of science, and more and more people are being convinced that they have a chemical imbalance and they need not one drug, they need two drugs or three drugs. 
understand that. You know, you, you're old enough. You know, when I came into the field, I never knew a psychiatrist who'd write a prescription for a child. Did you? No. It, well, where I trained, it just wasn't done. And well, done, it was done. Essentially, it, it, no, you didn't do that to children in those days. No way. Right. And now but, we have you know, a, a, a whole diagnoses just for the little ones and children as young as two, three years old are being diagnosed hyperactive. I mean, it's just, it boggles my mind. It, and, and I'm sorry, it, it, it ruins my sensibility that, that, that yeah. we're all a part of this. We have to bring this you know, down. If you want to, if you want to spoil your day, I'm ready to give you something that'll take you to a whole new level. It's something well, I already watch the news, so my yeah. day has been spoiled. Yeah. I turn on the television, yeah. going on in Washington, yeah. and the day is already spoiled. So spoil it some more, It's okay. Well, you know, we are now moving. If, if the drug companies, the psychiatry industry, the government, uh, and major media have their way, we will be going after through their Facebook and Google comments. Uh-huh. I read Social that, yes. will be used to set up algorithms to determine whether you might develop a mental disorder. And if so, we might need to contact you to get early so-called treatment. Yes, 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 absolutely. That one third of the world is supposed to be in need of this intervention. Right. And the next step, of course, is you pass a law that says if you're too mentally ill to recognize that you are ill, then we have to do it to you for you. Yes, yes, exactly. Exactly. I mean, you're talking about something that not even George Orwell had thought of. I'm saying that not only to spoil your day, Larry, but to most especially the people listening to us. I want to get yes, they, they, they was, has to be. They have to understand this, and they have to be able to rebel against it. And ultimately, it's a it's a political question. It's a political question. They need to join with you and me and all the other people, a small but growing network of people. They you they can find us. You will tell them how to find me and how to find you. That's where we have to start, a groundswell politically from ordinary people who are fed up with the lies that psychiatry and government and pharma, big pharma are telling. Now right. we have the media behind them. And we, that's our only chance of avoiding the catastrophe than we have now. Yes, 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 yes. Anyway. I have to thank you for this discussion. It's one of the best I've had in a long time. By the way, you know, there is a, uh, do you know Richard Shulman? I certainly know the name. I don't think we've met. Well, I, entered, I knew him from back when it was ICSPP, when it was still Peter yeah. Bregan's group. Uh, in 2003 yeah. and four, I did most of the heavy lifting for those conferences. Um, and I, with somebody else, I was a co ed In fact, at one point I was with, uh, was it Joe J. Joseph or somebody else? I co-edited the uh, Ethical Human Psychology, the uh, journal, uh, yeah. which now I, S-E-P-P's journal. Um, he set up a foundation, a 
a, a foundation in Hartford in which he got money from donors and set up a system where people work in the community, anything they want to do. And for four hours of work, they get one hour of psychotherapy with a trained psychologist, a licensed psychologist. No diagnoses are made. There's no forms that are filled out. There's no, no terrible record, no diagnosis that has to be uh, uh, followed. And I, the more I interviewed him, I thought this was a fantastic process. Because in a way, it's a way of really structuring a, a non-medical approach mm-hmm. uh, to, to helping people and offering people help. And I'm not even sure that the therapy will be as much help as doing community service. Uh, you know, when I create my criteria for mental health, I define mental health as voting. One of the things is you vote. If you're not voting yeah. as a citizen of your country and making sure you're structuring the political system to the way you want it to be, then there's something missing. There's a problem. Now, of course, it's not an illness, but it could be diagnosed as an illness if you wanted to. Political indifference disorder. How is that? Does that sound good? As long as the person who is seeking help is the judge of what is helping and what isn't. Yes, and it is that way, by the way. It is that. So it's a very democratic system, and I think it's a model. Uh, I interviewed him for an hour a few weeks ago. You could listen to the, you know, you can go into the archive of my broadcasts. Um, I have back a couple of years when Zoss was still alive. I interviewed Zoss, and I interviewed, who wrote Mad in America? Oh, that's uh, Bob Whitaker. Yes, I interviewed Bob Bob Whitaker. Um, so there's a whole bunch of, of archive stuff uh, that people do come to uh, and, and listen. And, and um, so the model is there. The model is there. Uh, and I thought Schulman's idea was absolutely spot on. I thought terrific, the kind of work that they're doing, because it's totally voluntary, totally non-coercive, totally non-judgmental. Um, and it's a, you know, you do a bargain. I work in the community. I work in a soup kitchen or a hospital or whatever it is I do. And I get to talk to a psychotherapist. I mean, I thought that was absolutely. Yeah, you know, anyway, you said is kind of voting. If, if we took away the power that no therapist could ever force themselves on anybody, then the people seeking help would vote. It would be a kind of vote. They simply would not do the things that now they're being forced to do. And we would quickly find out which professionals have something worthwhile to offer and which ones don't. Because the clients, the ones seeking help, stop doing the things that they don't like and continue doing it. And maybe there would be fewer magic wands out there being held in somebody's face. I mean, you know, and I use that metaphorically as well as as non-metaphorically. Because uh, we don't need any more magically. We don't need any no, more lies, and we don't need any more magic. We're, we're, we're up to our, our bippies in it. Anyway, um, do you think there's more for us to discuss, or maybe we should close this down for today? What do you think? Well, uh, I think probably we've given a lot of food for thought for the listeners, and now it's up to them. So I just say goodbye to them and to say we hope to hear from you get involved because that's the only right. way it's going to change well I'm going to find a way to get your book and read it 
and then have you come back on as a co-host or actually the host of the show. And I can't thank you enough for your time and your, your uh, caring and your intelligence. I can't. And okay, you and I, I now have to sit back. And now you and I have to sit back and wait for the diagnoses to come in on us. Because you oh, know we will both you will, you and I will both be heavily diagnosed <laughs> as really disturbed people. I bring you know, as a politician of a few years said, most inadvisedly bring them on. Well, in this case yeah. it's okay. I'm ready for any of those people who want to criticize us on that basis, let them have at it. Right. Okay. Um, thank you, Lee. Okay. Uh, I, I wish more people had fun. And uh, I thought okay. from my, my perspective, this is one of the best podcasts uh, I've ever be happy to put on online. When I hang up, I press end episode. And in a little bit while, you can, it'll come online. And you can go back and you can listen to it, and, and uh, you can tell your friends. And in the meantime, uh, I'm going to try to get hold of your book, and um, we'll see what happens. Are you going to go to the conference in, in October? I probably will be there, but sometimes things get in the way, but I think I will. Yeah. I'm thinking of going. I don't travel well at this point. Um, I have some nasty orthopedic issues. And uh, my wife is not happy if I leave her for, for any length of time. So I may go, I may not go. But I really, there are people there I would really like to meet. Um, yes. There yes. are some really fabulous people that uh, are, are in the group and then that I've met since it's become ISEPP. So I'll yeah. see. Yes. And if I do, you and I will have to uh, tipple a glass. Yes, and, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And keep up. So I'm going to say good evening. Take care. Okay. You too. Good night. Bye bye.